This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We're here every Thursday to thumb through the pages of history, so make sure you subscribe to stay up to date. Now today we're exploring history in a different way on the podcast by getting English heritage experts to answer your questions about castles. So joining me to answer everything you would like to know are... Hello, I'm Jeremy Ashby. I'm the Head Properties Curator at English Heritage. And in my time, I've worked on a number of English Heritage castles, including Dunstanborough, Goodrich, Clifford's Tower, Framlingham, Rochester and Tintagel. Hi, I'm Will Wyeth. I'm a properties historian specialising in castles and their landscapes. And I've also worked on a few castles and their landscapes over the course of my time at English Heritage. The most recent one I'm working on is Walkworth in Northumberland, but I've also done work on Stokesay in Shropshire and Richmond in North Yorkshire. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Will. Welcome to you both. Now, let's start with a question from English Heritage member James Norris, and he has asked, what is the definition of a castle? Who wants to go first? It's a complicated question that, that I think probably Jeremy and I will try to give as clear an answer as possible without too many weasel words. My answer to this question is a residence which was built in imitation of a fortification. Okay. Oh, that's a really good one. And I can see where some of this is coming from because there are there are great minds that have considered this question. And the one that I often use has certain problems, but I still find it quite useful, is from a, a great professor called Alan Brown, who I think was working in the 1950s and 1960s, and he said, the castle is the strongly fortified residence of a lord. More recently, a former colleague and good friend of mine, John Goodall, who wrote a very big book on castles in 2011, he had a different definition, which is quite close to Will's, because it talks a bit about architecture and imitation. And he says that a castle is the residence of a lord made imposing through the trappings of fortification, which is quite long-winded, isn't it? But mm. what that gets over is one particular problem that we might be talking about of things that have got fortifications like battlements and turrets, but actually probably are not that defensible They're in practice. They are strong-looking houses. And Alan Brown's definition, you'd have to cut them out because they're not strongly fortified, but we kind of like them and we like to include them. So that's why the John Goodall definition is actually really helpful. Very interesting. Almost three definitions there. But we'll move on to another question from one of our listeners. And Charlotte Timperley from Chester would like to know, why were castles built? Okay, well, again, it's another very interesting question with with a lot of possible answers. I think some of the big ones are going to be about controlling territory or protecting territory. So putting a castle in an area, in theory, means that actually you can control that area because 
you know, hopefully you are in a strong position where anyone else who wants to challenge you will find it difficult to get you out because you're in there. And you might also have a number of soldiers, perhaps even people on horseback, who can ride around in the local area doing your bidding. So I think that's probably going to be quite a big one for a number of, of, of castles. That's probably one of the primary reasons why they were built. It's also a land ownership and status symbol and symbol of wealth type thing, isn't it? Would you say that, Will? Yeah, I'd, I'd completely agree. And, and in a way, my answer would kind of only develop Jeremy's answer. Um, the, the one that jumps to mind is Stokesay, which I've already mentioned. It captures both the problem of defining a fortification in that it looks a lot like fortification, but it isn't actually that defensible on the one hand. And then also the reason why it was built was certainly to act as, as an estate centre, a means of controlling the main way of generating wealth in the medieval period through agriculture and, and owning that produce of that agriculture. But it also represented kind of the pinnacle of its builder's career. Lawrence of Ludlow, who built Stokesay, was was a well-off merchant who did very well managing wool contracts, import-export, based in Shropshire, but operating throughout Northwest Europe at that time. And to celebrate his kind of new wealth and his new status and his emergence into Shropshire kind of noble society, he built himself a castle. And so it kind of it captures the essence of what a castle is and, and what it can be quite nicely. If I remember from the pictures, this is the one which, as you describe, is in Shropshire. It's got a sort of very strong stone aspect to it with a sort of a border. But there's also what appeared to be almost like a Tudor type building on top of this stone. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Stokesay is kind of very odd because although most of what you see is, is built within 20 years of each other, spanning uh, you know a big stone strong tower on the one hand and then this kind of jettied timber story on the other hand it kind of captures some kind of paradoxes in what makes the castle one of the best things about it is the survival of, of these timber elements not just this jettied story which although it looks like it's tudor it's actually from the the early 14th century we think but in, in the Great Hall, which is um, kind of the main ceremonial space within the castle, the roof is built of great soaring timbers. But those timbers have been dendrochronologically dated, so scientifically dated, to around the late 13th, early 14th century. So we know that they're all original. It makes Stokes a, a kind of a total gem for English Heritage's castles. Yeah, really rare. Because uh, Jeremy and I uh, met at Framlingham Castle the first time we did a podcast. And I think you remember Jeremy describing that inside the ring of wall that we were surrounded by would have been all of these buildings that no longer exist. That's absolutely right. Yeah, it is. And Stokesy is a very precious survival because it's got the timber bits that have been lost in other places. But I'm really glad that you mentioned Framlingham because just as Will was saying that sometimes the motivations for building castles are very personal. So Lawrence of Ludlow builds Stokesay basically to mark his his arrival in in the highest points of society. But Framlingham and and its neighbour Orford have a really lovely point. The building of Orford was basically to annoy the people at Framlingham. Um, <laughs> that Fre- Henry the the second suddenly realised as he watched the big odd family at Framlingham getting more and more powerful and more and more important that he hadn't got a castle anywhere in Suffolk. That he was trying to impose his own authority on a whole county from the distance of Norfolk, and that really wasn't going to fly for him. So this is a moment to build the best castle that money can buy and very very quickly at the seaport of Orford just nearby so it's a really important thing that quite often the reasons why castles get built are very specific for the person and the time and the place where the castle gets built. 
We also get a lot of questions about the number of castles. So can you tell us how many castles are there in England and which right. country in the UK has the most castles? This took a little bit of doing, but I have to thank some of my friends from the Castle Studies group, in particular John Kenyon, who's a great scholar and great fan of these podcasts, who I know will be listening now, who helped me with the answer, because this is one that quite a lot of people have thought of. So the easy answer for this is, in England, there are 2,076 castles, and that list was arrived using a great survey called Castellarium Anglicanum, that a scholar in the mid-20th century carried out. Now, 2076 in total, you know, naturally, I'm going to demolish that figure in a minute, but while we're celebrating 2076, one thing is worth saying, that 500 of those, so, you know, a quarter, are actually in only five counties in England, and those counties are Shropshire and Herefordshire, and Cumberland and Northumberland, and Yorkshire. Well, Shropshire, Herefordshire, Cumberland and Northumberland are on borders, the borders with Scotland and the borders with Wales. And that is probably significant. That doesn't work for Yorkshire. Yorkshire, there's something else that's going on. Now, that 2076 is, I think, a very low figure, because I think there are going to be a lot of castles that are actually of quite short duration particularly at times of unrest and violence, particularly in the 12th century, the period called the Anarchy, when I mean, historically we know that quite a lot of castles were being built. And we find bits of them archaeologically when we do surveys around the country. Sometimes they don't have a name. You know, we can't say who it was that built them or precisely when. But that's kind of interesting, you know, in its own right. So I figure that that figure of 2076 is probably on the low side. There have in there in our time probably been a lot more than that though at any one moment the number would be quite low it would probably be something in the order of 500 or 600 one scholar has calculated right wales Hmm. um just to to carry on with the the, you asked the question about other nations will Hmm. um is best place to talk about scotland but i'll have a go at wales wales actually only has 426 and i think that may surprise some people because it's often said that wales has a a very, very high number of castles reflecting the peculiarities of its history. But in numerical terms, it doesn't have so many. But I would say that it makes up in quality what it lacks in quantity. And many castle spotters, and I would call myself that, if they had to do their desert island discs of castles, you're probably going to have quite more than one in Wales are going to feature on the list because certain castles in Wales are incredibly good and whoppingly big. Will, what about the ones in Scotland? Yeah, again, it's um, two things. Firstly, the number that I've arrived at is derived from my own research. I did my PhD on Scottish castles, so, um, you know, all of the disclaimers apply. The second point (laughs) probably actually speaks to the Welsh evidence as well, and and maybe some English evidence, is that in the medieval period in Scotland, even in, in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, the people who inhabited places like castles sometimes also lived in places that didn't look like castles, if that makes sense. And, and Scotland has a tradition of inhabitation in the medieval period of crannogs. And a crannog is, is essentially a, a, an artificial or, or a, a modified natural island, usually in, in a loch. So that's a, a Scottish lake. And there are maybe one or two inshore um, marine lochs, but, but that are quite far removed from the actual throes of the sea. And so when you ask kind of how many castles there are in Scotland, the answer is kind of tempered by this idea that not everyone was living in castles, even though there were castles around at the time. People you would expect to live in castles might not live in castles. So the answer I arrived at 
start from my PhD was about 1600, so 1600, which is close to the lower end of what's been estimated for Scotland, for England, I should say, that Jeremy just drew attention to. But the caveat again is that most of these places were probably not inhabited at the same time. Some may have only been fleetingly inhabited and the devil is in the detail. So what you would call a castle may not be understood as a castle in medieval Scotland. And um, that's probably the best answer you're going to get from me, I I think, for for Scotland, I'm afraid. (laughs) Okay. how do you spell Cranach? That's C-R-A-N-N-O-G, Cranach. Right. Very interesting. It's almost like having a natural moat. It's almost like you choose a lake and then you decide where you're going to put your castle. (laughs) Almost like it's the hardest way to do it by the sounds of things. Also slightly reminds me of um, two common phrases, uh, no man is an island and um, every man's house is his castle. Exactly. It should be modified to to, to no man is a Cranach, surely. (laughs) Yes, yes, potentially. Lastly then, I suppose, Northern Ireland. How many castles are there? We've not covered Northern Ireland, and I suppose the challenge with Northern Ireland is that it sits within quite a complicated medieval landscape. And so part of Northern Ireland, as it stands today in the UK, was within the earldom of Ulster, which has several very impressive castles in it. But I I haven't actually got a definite number for Northern Ireland. I suspect some of the challenges that we've encountered for England and for Scotland and for Wales exist in Northern Ireland as well, because Northern Ireland was home to kind of clear castral tradition, which spoke to a lot of the big major castles in Wales and in England and in Scotland. But there was also this parallel tradition of, of actually living in Cranags, very similar to Scotland, an artificial island. Hmm. Um, and so it would not be unusual in the medieval period in Ireland to find kind of Anglo-Norman lords who, who presented themselves as knights on horseback, who did loyalty to the King of England, alongside a separate body of nobles who were from an existing tradition in Ireland, which we would call kind of Gallic, where they spoke a different language. They didn't necessarily build castles, but some of them did. But in other ways, they acted like the nobility in England. So they, for example, patronised parish churches, patronised uh, monastic houses, they went on pilgrimages, they wrote, uh, they took part in, in charters, that's medieval documents, they had their own seals, which depicted them perhaps on horseback with heraldic devices. It's it's a complicated story for Ireland. I, I, I don't think there's a simple answer. I, mm. is, is that fair, do you think, Jeremy? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, I've never really done a great deal of work on Ireland. What I would say is I've done a lot more work on Wales. And what you say in connection with Scotland is absolutely right, that Welsh society just engaged with castles in a completely different way, that their princes, before the English invaded, used castles but they didn't really live in them as as grand residences or palaces and as a consequence they were actually quite small and the Welsh equivalent of a gentry class didn't really take to castles so really you know that's why the numbers in Wales are relatively small an awful lot of the castles that we see there are the castles of the English who come in and settle either in the borderland in the marches or after Edward the first time actually across the whole of Wales. So to summarise the uh Answer to the question, it's 2,076 castles in England, that's the most in the UK. Scotland has around 1,600 and Wales 426. Do you think there are any other castles that are sort of lying in wait uh, under the ground to be discovered by archaeologists at some point? Beyond question there are, and probably in quite large numbers, which is why both Will and I, I think, were quite careful to say this is a figure and it's a very specific one, but it comes with a lot of caveats about, about it. 
I mean, some of the most impressive surveys of unknown castles in England have been from aerial photography. But for that to work, really, you've either got to have certain climatic conditions, so crop marks appear, or Mm. more likely, you've actually got to have upstanding features. You've got to have banks and ditches and other things. But I think I'm sure there are some where actually the remains are much more ephemeral. And as remote sensing techniques get better, we may start to pick them up. Well, that's an exciting prospect, I must say. Let's move on to some specific time periods now. We'll begin with a question from David Steele. He has asked, what were the earliest English castles before the Norman invasion? Apologies, David, this is going to be another quite a complicated answer, but I'll do my best to kind of break it down into some basic points. So firstly, the short answer to how many castles there were in England before the Norman Conquest is is probably not many. In order to kind of understand that more clearly, we need to talk about Edward the Confessor, who was the last or the, the penultimate, I should say, a king of England before the Norman Conquest. When he was crowned king of England in about 1043, he arrived in, in the country having spent most of his child in exile in Normandy and when he became king he returned to England with a small number of followers in his stead who were Norman. Now among the castles that were built by these people are places like Ewias Harold, Richard's Castle and Rayleigh Castle in Essex which are all built before the conquest. Now they were probably built because Edward gave his followers either pieces of land or important jobs in the kingdom as a way of saying thank you but also as a way of fixing them into his society and into his following. So that's kind of the first answer. The second one which is a little more nuanced is it kind of goes back to the question of what makes a castle. Now, it's kind of a subject of debate amongst amongst scholars who've looked at the emergence of what we would call aristocratic residences in the 10th and 11th centuries in England. So that's the period both before, during and after the Norman Conquest to say, well, we know that the Normans arrived in England and that castles appear after that, but actually... Are castles a direct product of the conquest, which they certainly, they partly are, or are they actually a manifestation of a trend that was taking place in England before the Norman Conquest? Now, the jury is still out. What Jeremy was saying about exploring more evidence is definitely going to be the key here, because there are a few examples of places where we can say in the 10th century, this place looks a lot like what would become castles in the 11th century. The example I'm thinking of here is West Cotton, which was the site of an excavation in the 1980s and 1990s, which had buildings that we would call a hall, uh, a private kind of chamber, we would call it a residential block, kitchens and other outlying buildings surrounded by a large ditch. And outside of that ditch was a mill and an associated mill pond. And if I was to describe to you those features in a 12th or 13th century context in England, you would say, aha, that's a castle. But because the evidence is from the 10th century, we're a little bit more reluctant. And whereabouts is Um, West Cotton? That's in Northamptonshire. So if you go there now, you won't see anything because it's all been excavated. But you can find the excavation report online. It's absolutely fascinating read. Um, Can I jump in at this this point? Because what Will flags up is is a really interesting point, that there's a bit of a division in opinion, actually in disciplines, one between archaeologists and one between historians. Archaeologists who look at the physical fabric of what's found, what's excavated, exactly as Will was saying, what 
they have in late Anglo-Saxon England looks like a castle. It's got all the physical attributes of a castle. But there's been a great deal of reluctance, particularly among many historians, to do this. And there's a num- it's a complicated argument. There's a number of reasons for this. But they do tend to fixate on the kind of individuals in late Anglo-Saxon England that owned these sites, or the kind of institutions that they belonged to. And particularly, I think many historians also fall back on a quite quick answer. There is a 12th century writer, the child of parents, one of whom was English, one of whom was, was from Normandy, who made a very simple statement that basically the Normans won because they could ride on horseback, but also because they had castles. It was one of the, the devices of warfare that the Anglo-Saxons didn't have that proved to be decisive in actually making sure that the Norman conquest was, was cemented and, and continued. Well, let's move on to another question. And Jen Tyler has asked, why did the Normans build so many castles? This is obviously after they conquered England. The answer to a certain extent is that 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 conquest needed to be cemented. And the the key idea behind the conquest was to essentially replace the people who were in charge and, and put yourselves in charge. And the Normans felt and history vindicates that that feeling that that castles were a really good way of doing that and and it boils down to thinking about why castles were built castles were uh, about exercising control about offering protection and uh, sometimes it was purely about economic exploitation i mean so doomsday is um is a survey of most of the, what would become the kingdom of england uh, assessing revenues that were due or the resources that each place could generate now it's not a perfect document but it does record some very early castles that norman built norman's built one example is chepso castle which is mentioned as being built and and uh Chepstow Castle collected tolls, so a, a toll is a charge for using a crossing point, and in that case it was crossing the river right by the castle. There are, there are five other castles that appear in Doomsday that make references to markets. So why the Normans built so many castles? Well, there, there were many reasons. Some of them could be primarily military, some of them could be about building a centre for administration, some of them had quite clear kind of economic factors, as, as I just said. So a lot of it's about control, but some, some castles are clearly quite specific in what, what they're trying to do. So sticking with the Normans, we have a question from Richard Abara, and he would like to know what are Mott and Bailey castles, but this feeds into that, doesn't it? Yeah, so Mott and Baileys, are, are, they're a type of castle, first and foremost, and their name comes from the two key parts that comprise that castle, the Mott, which, which was a mound, a raised block of earth, and the second part is the bailey, which is which is the word essentially for a space that's enclosed by a wall. And modern baileys are, are interesting and, and they're related to the Normans because they're especially common in English history right after the Norman conquest and especially the first hundred years. They were built by hand. Obviously, there weren't many machines and the way that workers would build them would be for the mound. They would dig a very, very large ditch around an area and use the filling of that ditch to toss it into the middle to create, to to, to pile up earth and earth and earth and earth until you got a nice big mound which would then be joined by a bailey which was probably just just a low area that was surrounded by a ditch and together that makes the modern bailey and today there are quite a few modern baileys that survive some of them have been built on by later buildings the example i'm thinking of here is walkworth castle which has got uh, later ruined buildings on top. Other modern baileys are still lived in Windsor Castle. We, we know, I think, who lives there. Uh, that's another example of a mott with two baileys. 
Um, that's the Queen were, for anyone who's not living in England. <laughs> exactly, that's the Queen. The Queen of Queens, one of her residences at Windsor. Some modern baileys were abandoned quite soon after they were built. I'm thinking of Skipsey Castle here in North Yorkshire, uh, in East Yorkshire, I should say. Although the caveat with Skipsey is that it, the people who built the Mott there were kind of cheating because the mound on, of which it formed parts is actually an Iron Age burial mound, which is about two and a half thousand years old. So when its builders got there, they were building with a bit of a head start, essentially. Mm, but also building on a cemetery, which is uh, perhaps... A... Not that uncommon, I'm afraid. Mm. <laughs> they probably didn't realise it was there. Um, yeah, we've got a few perhaps. others like that. Clifford's Tower in York is another one that, that that's similar. And um, I mean, the Skipsy is part of this amazing program of research of people going around taking cores through these castle motts. And it's not the only instance where they found that actually the Norman mot is, 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 is really just a disguised prehistoric burial ground. Marlborough in Wiltshire, which is quite close to Silbury Hill, you know, the enormous mm. prehistoric earthwork, turns out that the mot at Marlborough is another one of these mounds that, that that was built you know many centuries before the normans came along it can get quite gruesome in detail um, i'm thinking of, of old sherborne castle in in southwest england which um the castle was built around the 1130s but we know that it was built directly on top of a, of a cemetery that was only abandoned in the 10th century so there's only about 200 years between the end of the use of this cemetery and the construction of the castle which we know cut through a lot of the existing burials in the area so yeah, it, 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 it could be quite a messy process. And we see the same thing happening really with modern infrastructure, especially the um, building of Crossrail in London. That's often yeah, going through burial grounds, yeah. uh, Roman, Victorian, whatever it is. So, yeah, and um, the programme of building castles throughout England, I mean, actually the analogy of building a railway or building a road network or something like that is probably quite apposite for the, the kind of impact that they would have had on the, on, on the, the whole landscape. Mm, absolutely. So we've covered some of the key facts and figures surrounding English castles, so we're going to move on now to how they were used. Our next listener question comes from Robert Baxter. He's 12 years old and lives in Surrey, and he has asked, who lived in castles and what would life have been like for them? So two questions there, really. Um, A broad kind of answer coming, I'm sure. Who wants to tackle this one? Okay, I'll go first and then we'll say a bit more. You know, we talked already about castles as being the residences of some of the top dogs in society, but I think the important thing is that a castle itself comprised a community that had a lot of variation within it. So the owner of the castle is, by definition, going to be someone fairly important. Probably the lowest status that he's going to have is to be a gentry status. He's going to be a knight, but he could easily be an aristocrat, so an earl or a, or a, eventually you know, a duke. Or high-ranking figures in the in the Christian Church, so bishops own castles, right up to the very pinnacle of, of society, the monarchy. That that kings and princes and queens they own castles and they genuinely live in them. But they are going to be surrounded by other people, you know, who are there to serve them, who are necessarily of lower rank. And sometimes the most important people aren't actually going to be there in person. So quite often, the person who's going to be there all the time, the constable of the castle, whose job it is to make sure that the the castle is actually properly run and properly looked after, could be a figure of much lower status. He, he, He might well be a knight, but he might even not be a knight, and he would be in charge of a whole household of servants, of soldiers possibly in some cases quite small numbers of soldiers actually you know maintain the security in castles 
And that would go right down to, at the very bottom of society, the very poorest people, beggars at the gate, you know, who would turn up because there perhaps might be donations, you know, in charity given by the richer people, and they would actually dole them out to, to peasants at the gate. All of these people have a place in castles, and if you just rocked up at Walkworth Castle or Clifford's Tower or, or one of those, you might well actually see a quite broad spectrum of society actually there inside the castle. So how life would have been like, that question, is quite varied then, because you're still living in a in a fortified space, but it's still going to be potentially very cold in the winter. You're not going to have carpet, because uh, that doesn't exist at that time, ah, I suppose. Ah, well, interesting you should say that. Sometimes you did. I mean, it, I wouldn't want to give the impression that, the, you know, we now see many castles as, as very gaunt, you know, ruined shells. Actually, they could get really quite um, elaborate. And you just mentioned about carpets. I do have to say that one of the earliest mentions of castles in documentary history relates to a castle. When the Princess of Spain, Eleanor of Castile, arrived in 1258, her lodgings in London, very probably inside the Tower of London, were fitted up in a Spanish style with presumably Islamic carpets and and textiles hanging on the walls which apparently the English thought was were hilarious and so over the top that, that they all laughed and the Spanish didn't quite know what to make of it so that's just a little indication to say that actually they could be quite comfortable but only for the people at the top of society and the people who are rich enough to afford those right. kind of luxuries. Okay, well, I must apologise to listeners for my sort of presumptuousness just now about, uh, you know, what would be underfoot. I presume that the depictions in Hollywood of castles are potentially wrong. This, this image of hay on the flagstones, is that wrong? Uh, I think it probably had its place sometimes in there. And I enjoy those films as much as everyone else, although I reserve the right to laugh a bit. But I think that one of the mistakes that Hollywood always made is that the Middle Ages is, is just one period. And actually, it's not. The Middle Ages goes on for many centuries. And there's huge variations over time. So by the time you get to the end of the Middle Ages, people are trying very hard not to have too much straw on the floor and other things. Whereas in the 12th century, straw on the floor might be something that the top people had. Um, sorry, another historical anecdote, and then I promise I'll stop doing the historical anecdotes. King Henry II, who's the chap at Dover Castle, he had a very short temper, and an eyewitness describes that when you annoyed Henry II, he would roll on the floor, foaming at the mouth, and would pick up rushes from the floor and would chew them in, in his fury. So <laughs> it's one of those things that's described in there, and it must it must be true. Well, we've learnt a lot there. Um, so, And it's also another broad sort of nuanced question. But life in a castle in the Middle Ages, it's not going to be that easy, I don't think. It's not going to be that easy. And the, I mean, Will may have something to say in a minute, but I must also say it depended who you were. And if you're a prisoner, then some of the, you know, some of the, your conditions could be dreadful, particularly if you were a, a low-ranking prisoner. If you're a high-ranking prisoner, it's, it's remarkably like normal life, except that Perhaps, oh, yeah. you know, you live under lock and key, but other than that. but Absolutely, just ask of, Mary, Queen of Scots. <laughs> yeah, but I think some of the clichés are at least true in part. OK, well, let's move on to another question then. Um, we've talked about who would have lived in an English castle across various time periods, but many were also built to defend against attack. Blair Montgomery has actually asked a question on this one. How were castles attacked? For attacking first, the easiest thing that you, you could do is just turn up with a large army and stop 
anyone going in and out through the gate, particularly stop people bringing supplies in. And eventually, if you can do this successfully, the garrison will surrender or starve. That's a slightly unromantic answer, but actually it's true. Quite a number of sieges actually are decided by when the food runs out. The next easiest thing to do is to find the weakest part of the castle and break it down. And the weakest part of the castle is fairly consistently going to be the gate. So try to rush the gate with large numbers of people. And, you know, some kind of battering ram and things of that kind, they they did exist in the Middle Ages. And that could be used. If that doesn't work, then you've got to be a bit more inventive. And making a hole in the stone wall, that's going to take some time. A favourite way of trying to do that is to send in your men with pickaxes as miners so they'll dig away at the stone and if at the same time you've got the kind of heavy machinery like stone throwing siege engines then they can throw rocks at the same kind of stone and they, they, they will weaken them. And finally once you get sort of after the 14th century firearms come into the equation as well the use of cannon and famously it's during the wars of the Tudor period and and later firearms can be decisive so in the civil war of the 17th century at a site like Goodrich Castle very substantial damage was done by a particular mortar that fired explosive shells a mortar called Roaring Meg which is actually still on display at the castle and Roaring Meg you know brought down a whole tower on one corner after which the garrison had to surrender so there's a, a whole variety of possible answers there well let's talk about the other side of things then the defensive side and perhaps Will can help us with an answer on that we have a question though from Thea Jackson and she has asked about how were the castles defended so Will in a way the simplest answer is to is to counteract the efforts that Jeremy's just outlined <laughs> that's the most straightforward answer Hollywood provides some useful things here we do think that a lot of the tops of walls were covered with, we think, temporary, almost like timber houses, which we call hoarding, which people could conceal themselves beneath if they were atop the wall, firing arrows down onto attackers. Boiling oil, I think, is probably owes more to, to Hollywood fiction than to reality, though I'm sure there'll be an example to disprove my point there. Other <laughs> things like hot sand would be possible. Throwing stones more generally is, is, is a cost-effective way of offering yourself protection. By and large, it's probably best just to, if you're defending the castle, just to stay where you are and make sure that everyone inside is is on board with the mission, with, with the project ambition of surviving. And the key thing is to make sure that there's enough food and drink, because if a castle stays surrounded for long enough, as Jeremy said, the essential provisions will run out and, and then things get quite desperate. There's one thing, though, that works better than anything else in defending a castle, which is to make your castle look like a castle. Make it look as scary as you possibly can. And then people might think twice about attacking it. And that's not an entirely flippant answer. I mean, one of the pieces of research that I do quite a lot is, if I can find them, is to look at inventories of castles, which will talk about the food, it'll talk about the armour, and it'll talk about the weaponry. And one of the things that, you know, always surprised me, but now I I think I understand a bit better, is that you'd find a number of inventories for really big and powerful castles, like some of these ones in Wales, and you'd get a list of, you know, one piece of rusty armour after another, and broken lances, and crossbows without strings, and all that kind of thing, and it all looks dreadful, as if it's not being run. But actually, it might well just be a testament to how effective the castle was being, that this armour was just allowed to rust and to rot. They never needed to use it. 
because anyone looking at Carnarvon Castle or, or Conwy or, or plenty of castles in, in England, you know, have this same kind of effect, that the architecture is so daunting that you really don't want to have a go with it. And mm. I'm sure that that actually was, was the decisive factor for many people at many sites. Following on from this defensive theme then, we have a question from Simon Davis, and he has asked, which was the most besieged English heritage castle? The answer that I always give, and I still think it's true, is Norham Castle in Northumberland, which is on the banks of the River Tweed. And the River Tweed is the border between England and Scotland. So, you know, Will, with his background in in Scottish castleology and archaeology, can probably give me some insights into the other side of this equation. But Norham Castle, I've done this this calculation loads of times. The highest figure that I've ever got to is is it being besieged, changing hands 14 times in its history. I had another go this afternoon, and I never do this twice and get the same figure. The English Heritage Guidebook gave me nine, but it didn't indicate every time the castle has changed hands. So 14 is what I'm sticking with. In a previous job, I used to work at the Tower of London, and I always used to reckon that the Tower of London played 12 and lost eight. But what I would say is that these are actually pretty high numbers for many of our sites. And Norham, it just makes sense because this is the most contested border anywhere in the in, in the history of the United Kingdom. I think for a whole number of our sites, they get attacked very, very few times in their history. A site that I work on in Cornwall, Restormal Castle, seems to have only been involved in, in, in action on one day in its entire wow. existence. So it's interesting that the border ones are the ones that see the most action and also natural, I suppose. Yeah, I, th- I think it is natural. And, and, and Norham, is, Norham is a case in point. It's a castle built by the bishops of Durham who are given essentially a, a royal contract to manage this, this part of the border with Scotland. And so there is an anticipation that there is going to be a lot of traffic. Now, uh, th- th- this was not a thankless task for the bishops of Durham. They were given near royal power in a lot of their own territories, and they were given very extensive powers around Norham. But um, increasingly over the medieval period, actually, this business of, of running the border and of sustaining the boundary between England and Scotland especially becomes a very lucrative business. And I'm thinking here of the, one of the families which benefited the most from this was the Percys, who were partly based at Walkworth and partly at a few other castles nearby and, and also in Yorkshire. They made it their family's mission to be the quintessential border guards for this area for much of the late 14th and 15th centuries. And they did extremely well out of that process. And so when we look at the, the, the parts of Walkworth Castle that the Percys constructed, especially the late 14th century Great Tower, which is an absolute masterpiece of medieval design, we have to reflect on what that tower is saying, not just as a defensive kind of image for people approaching from Scotland, for example, to say, wow, the Percys are, this is a very impressive castle. But it's also about the Percy saying we are the family in this part of England, so far removed from where where the royal power in England is based in the south and the east and relatively close to the border with Scotland. We are the police officers for this part of the world Mm -hmm. and the crown is only ever going to trust us with business here. So being on the border has, has definitely has a, a role to play, but it's also about the people who built it and what they're trying to say with their castles in that area. And for reference, Walkworth was also besieged several times, but nowhere near as much as Norham. Interesting. Well, let's move on to another question then. Uh, how many of English Heritage's castles are ruins and how many are largely intact? 
Okay. Yeah, it's, a, it's a good question. Jeremy, do you want to, do you want to give well, it Well, uh, yeah, I was actually going to give a slightly flippant answer and just say most of them are ruined. This is one where I haven't actually done the statistics. We do have a handful of really quite outstanding castles that are very, very well preserved. And we've already talked a lot about Stokesay and we'll come back onto that. That's a really classic example. And there are a handful of others, but quite a lot of the ones that we get or that were given to our predecessor organisations came over for the, to us for the specific reason that their operational life was over and that their existence was now as an ancient monument. And that does tend to mean that it's impossible for anyone to continue to live in them full time. That That's actually part, part of a legal definition. Mm. So that's why most of ours are roofless ruins and an awful lot of them. Actually, their operational history ended in the 17th century with the the Civil War, and most particularly its aftermath when the Parliament gave orders that they were actually to be systematically damaged in such a way that actually they couldn't be used again as they had been before. Yes. So percentage-wise, could you give us a, a rough figure of how many are ruins? Well, for English heritage, I think it's going to be something in the order of between 80 and 90% of them are going to be ruins. It's 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 it's, it's small handful that, that that are not and that they are definitely the exceptional ones i think okay our next listener question comes from english heritage member adrian pepper and he asks has english heritage got plans to reconstruct any of the ruinous properties or do you stabilize them as they are yeah okay well this is another one for me with my other hat on as the head properties curator and not as uh, as a castle historian and i think about this very often we don't have a a point of principle that says we would never restore castles but we operate to a set of conservation principles that actually do make it quite difficult because we set ourselves a number of tests we say things like do we understand every detail about what a site looked like when it was intact and that's really difficult with castles because quite often it's whole walls that have gone where, you know, I can have have a guess and I can get a reconstruction artist to draw a picture of what we think it might have looked like, but we absolutely can't we can't say for absolutely certain. So that's that's a test that's difficult to deal with. We also, I mean, I think that this is a view that I know isn't universally popular, but it's one that I myself hold, which is that sometimes castles were ruined actually because of important historical events or important historical processes which is things like what I was just mentioning, the English Civil War. This is a big event. In its way, it's the parallel, it's the, it's the equal event to the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII. And you kind of have to honour the importance of that event in not trying to mm. overdo it. But there are some castles where actually it wasn't a particular event, it was just, you know, neglect or some accident that led to them being unroofed or losing their floors. And actually the information is there. And if we could afford to restore them, I'm not against it in principle. What I really enjoy doing as part of the work the work that I do is looking at ways where actually rather than trying to work against the, the history of the monument, to actually try to roll with it. And sometimes you can do quite a lot of substantial works to sites to improve access around them. So things like putting in the new walkways at Kenilworth Castle or indeed the new spectacular pedestrian footbridge at Tintagel. You know, these are modern structures, but they unquestionably help people to appreciate the form of those sites when they were functioning 
in the Middle Ages and indeed afterwards. So that's that's the kind of work that we we tend to do rather than actually to go all out and restore them exactly Mm. to their appearance. A similar sort of themed question then that moves on from that is from Janet Lim from Leeds. She wants to know, how did castles change over time? And I suppose that's also a very broad answer. Um, Will, do you want to have a go at this one? Yeah, I mean, it relates to how castles are used and how, how that use changes over time. We touched upon the idea of carpets and of straw and, and rushes on the floor. And, and in a way, that kind of relates to, to answering this question. I suppose if I think of the, the project that I'm working on at the moment, Walkworth Castle, um, it began its life as a castle as a modern bailey castle, probably largely built of timber with walls that were rendered or perhaps covered with clay and then rendered in white and then painted so it would have been quite a cosy space in the 12th century uh, early 13th century we see a massive overhaul where this enormous gatehouse and towers are built as, as kind of brand new accommodation and there the focus of living shifts into towers and in, into the gatehouse and then in in the 15th century we see a further change with what's there essentially being embellished and lots of uh, heraldry being added to it and of course, we see in, in, in the, the late 14th century, the Great Tower added to the top of the Mott, probably replacing an earlier structure there, which was by that time a little bit decayed. So it's kind of almost like a, like a natural process of replacing some things that are decayed on the one hand with fresh, fashionable, punchy new new buildings, new new ideas, new styles. Sometimes it's also about completely overhauling what was there before. I'm thinking here of, of Richmond, the castle when it was first built in the Norman Conquest, just after the Norman Conquest was, as you mentioned, Charles, kind of like a ring, a stone ring surrounding part of the top of a hill. And in the 12th century, its owner called Conan IV had just become Duke of Brittany, uh, now in France, and also held a huge estate in northern England. And to celebrate that status, he built himself an enormous stone tower right on top of the original entrance to Richmond Castle. So essentially built it over an old gate. And so they had to move the gate somewhere else to let people into the castle. But he was kind of almost changing the entire character of the castle because as, as you approached it previously, it was simply a wall with a simple kind of gatehouse running through it. And once you got in, you could see ranges of buildings, whereas now there was no ambiguity about where the castle was and who, how it was important, who was the person who was running it. This was Conan's castle and he had a near 50 metre stone tower rising above everywhere around Richmond to declare that status. So you kind of see material fabric changes, but you also see changes in in the emphasis of the building, I suppose. Let Stokes say, as we've been discussing at the start, that's in Shropshire. We talked about the timber building on top of the the stone structure. I've always thought that this looks very different from the typical sort of English heritage castle. What are the most interesting things that you've discovered about Stokesay's story and its people who live there? I've done a bit of work on on Stokes recently looking at how the castle changed as it came into the care of this very well-off merchant, Lawrence of Ludlow, who, who essentially rebuilt the entire castle and constructed not only the timber element that you're talking about there, but also built himself a great hall with, with that soaring timber roof with the crux that had been dated to the late 13th, early 14th centuries. But he also built a very fortress-looking south tower. And the work that I was looking at was thinking about this quite peculiar set of features about the south tower. 
Essentially, it relates to the way that the South Tower's toilets managed their waste, not to put it too bluntly. So the tower was built with two toilets uh, integral to its structure, and the flues of those toilets ran down the side of the tower and into the wet uh, moat that surrounded the castle, which could then be, through an ingenious use of sluices and uh, nearby streams and a pond, could be flushed and cleared when was required. Now, what I noticed was that quite soon after that quite clever system of, of flues within the tower was built, that the system was abandoned and that instead of emptying into the wet ditch, someone had essentially surrounded the openings of, of, of the flues around the tower and bricked them up so that they were completely concealed so that it was completely devoid from the wet ditch. Now, my conclusion from that was that Lawrence of Ludlow had this brilliant design for the South Tower, which looked a lot like some castles in Wales that were being built at the same time. This is something Jeremy knows more about than I do, and that was kind of the cutting edge of castle design. But that the practicalities of having toilets that flushed into a wet ditch where the water was perhaps just metres from the windows of this lovely South Tower, which probably had bedrooms in it, the reality of that basically became unlivable. And so pretty quickly the decision was made to close off those open chutes, those open sewers essentially, and come up with a different way of managing waste. So the way that castles change over time, to go back to the earlier question, isn't necessarily just about you know innovation and design and progress. Sometimes it's about coming up with this fantastic idea at Stokesay and then realising that it just does not work. It just doesn't work <laughs> yeah. for quite human reasons. No, well, it's trial and error, really, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. OK, let's do some final facts, some quick-fire final facts and stats to round things off. Mark Brightman from Southend wants to know, what is the biggest castle in England? The answer, yay, seems to be one of ours. I think it's Dover. I had to check another one. The one that's often cited in this regard is people say Windsor is there, and I actually went to the effort of getting out the scale plans and having a look and I'm very sorry your majesty but Windsor just doesn't come anywhere near close wow. um, but I think that it, Windsor may get in there because it may be the largest inhabited castle and in fact it may be the largest inhabited castle in Europe or even in the world I think that that gets interesting but Dover I can't give you a square meterage but it is absolutely enormous um, I think the area uh, yeah. inside the walls yeah. I think with people who know Windsor when they look at it it's in the town so you can walk around it and it's so dominant as a feature in the town whereas at Dover it's right there on the top of the hill and if you're on the beach you can only really see one side so that's probably where yeah, that's people... true I, I mean I know this is quick fire but what I would say is whenever you try to do this there's there's a bit of, of sophistry that you have to do because okay we're talking about the area inside the walls but actually the ditches they probably ought to be part of the castle as well and if the ditch is going to be part of the castle what do you do about something like Kenilworth where the castle was in the middle of an enormous man-made artificial mere you know which actually runs for several miles is that part of the castle logically yes but it would skew the answer enormously so I'm going to say Dover but I think that's going to be subject to many qualifications and caveats Okay, on the opposite end of the spectrum then, what is England's smallest castle? (laughs) (laughs) Probably similar to Jeremy, that there are probably lots of caveats to this. Certainly, I think one of the smaller ones that EH looks after, English Heritage looks after, is is Aden Castle in Northumberland, which is quite a small, discreet little castle. It's it's, it's on quite a a prominent position, but its, its ownership is not especially storied. 
um, and it comprises in its early phases a great hall and a chamber block and, and a latrine tower and a kitchen. It's, it's some of the basic building blocks of what makes a castle. There may have been more to that, but it's quite small. Having said that, those features are, are quite common amongst a, a raft of castles at the lower end of, of the scales, uh, mm. if that makes sense. So I don't know. It, it, it might be quite tricky to establish what was the smallest castle. Uh, great question. <laughs> I, I think it's a fantastic question, but it absolutely would be impossible to know. And for a number of reasons. I mean, one of the other reason is the a number of castles that we only know about fragmentarily. You know, we find a bit of a ditch here or a bit of a wall there, and we don't know the other side of it. So, so you just can't tell. I think Aden. I'm really glad we mentioned it because it's definitely one of my favourites. It's very near the Roman town of Corbridge, and anyone who finds himself up that way should really go and see it because it's a real treasure. It's very compact, and that's there. But possibly smaller than that are going to be ones that are on the border line between whether you can call them castles or not. And some of them have got castles in the name. So Wheating Castle, for example, in in uh, on the borders of of, of 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 Suffolk, and I think that might be, you know, just as small as, as as Aden, if not smaller. But, you know, whether or not actually you could call that a genuine castle or whether it's really a, one of these fortified man- manor houses or not is a bit difficult. So again, I think this is another one of those questions where no two castle specialists are going to give you an, uh, the same answer. OK, let's move on to another quick question. Alicia Clark from Derby wants to know, what is England's oldest castle? Mm. Oh, well... Um I think I can offer I can offer some answers to this. It would be among the castles that were built before the Norman Conquest. So Elias Harold would be one, Richard's Castle and Rayleigh Castle. Now, if you go there, the chances are you're not going to see very much because they tend to fall into the category of those which are either severely ruined or comprise just earthworks and we've probably lost the timber buildings that were there. Again, I have to plug Richmond Castle as among England's oldest castles. It's not among the oldest stone castles, but it's still very impressive. It's got an enormous curtain wall which survives, probably up to original height. The Great Hall and the chamber behind it survive. Haven't got roofs, but they're basically original heights. And these are buildings which are just shy of a thousand years old. It's it's astonishing to, to believe that they actually survive. I, I can't recommend them enough. So out of those ones that you've just described there, Will, what sort of parts of the country are we talking? So Elias Harold and Richard's Castle are in Herefordshire, uh, on the border with Wales. Rayleigh Castle is uh, in Essex and Richmond Castle is in North Yorkshire, on the border as was at the time it was built, though now more firmly in the middle of England. I've got to put in a plug for another one, though, that we haven't mentioned yet today, which is Pevensey Castle. Now, if you believe, as some historians would insist, that castles are essentially something that comes in with William the Conqueror and the Normans, Pevensey's jolly important because it's where they stay on night one after getting off the boat. They sail into Pevensey Bay, and that's where they get off. And already there were the upstanding remains of one of the Roman Saxon shore forts. So what more sensible place to be. But one of the chroniclers, a man called Wass, W-A-C-E, describes what sounds like Castle being brought flat pack on the boat and its timbers being brought out and assembled, a bit like Ikea, actually inside the inside the castle. So I would like to, sorry, inside the Roman Saxon straw fort. So I think that's one that's got to be in there, that on day one of the Norman Conquest and night one of the Norman Conquest, Pevensey was the place where, where the Normans set up camp in something that sounds jolly like a, like a timber castle. Yes. What was one of the last... Well, what was the last castle to be built in England? 
Okay, well, I'll sort of pitch in here as well because there's a, there is an answer that a lot of castle specialists often give, and I, I I think it's still quite a good one. It's from 1911, and it's a place called Castle Drogo in Devon. It's just on the north side of Dartmoor. It's still there. It's uh, actually a property owned by our sister organisation, the National Trust, and it was built by the great Edwardian architect. Edwin Lutyens for a client called Julius Drew who was a tea merchant who'd also founded a a series of of shops and he decided he wanted to live the life of a a medieval style lord. Lutyens apparently was quoted as saying why did the man not want to live in a country house like everyone else? Lutyens could have done him an absolutely lovely country house but no, Julius Drew was very insistent that his arrival in society a bit like the wool merchant Lawrence of Ludlow in the 13th century at Stokesay could only be signalled by building a castle. The castle is the, is the indispensable badge of rank. So that site is, is definitely still there and I think it's fair enough for us to say that that is the last one in England. Fair enough. And worth mentioning as well that Edwin Lutyens was the chap behind the Cenotaph as well in London. Quite so. Thank you for that. Yes, yes indeed. So if, you've, uh, uh, if you want, we've got an episode on that um, from last year. Now, moving on to our last listener question. Harry Bright has asked, Many castles are now English heritage sites or are cared for by other charities, but are there any that are still occupied? Well, maybe we should both have a go about this one, but we've already, as loyal subjects of the United Kingdom, we've already mentioned Windsor several times, and that's a really big one. Yes, it's still not just occupied, but it actually gives its name to our royal house. So, you know, Windsor Castle is important, but it's by no means unique. Arundel Castle is still the home of the Fitzalan Howard family, the, the Dukes of Norfolk. And there are you know, plenty of them, but they're at the very top and there are not that many. Where where you get more, I suppose, more of the, the plenty of them, is in more modest fortifications in certain parts of the country like Peel Towers and Tower Houses, particularly towards the north of England, because they're actually on a scale that lend themselves much, much better to occupation. So there's probably going to be a greater number of those that are still there. And the last thing I'd quite like to ask uh, from a personal point of view is... This phrase, an Englishman's home is his castle. Where does this come from? I have, I have no idea, but, but if, if I can give my two cents about what it suggests. But I think it does actually speak to some of the things that we've talked about, about, about actually why castles are important to us now as kind of modern citizens of, of England and of, of the UK because they speak to us about a medieval past. And Jeremy talked about kind of this conservation tradition in in Britain, which relates to the 19th century, to, to this Morris idea of not recreating a structure, but rather showing it as it is. In a lot of ways, even ruined castles in Britain have actually been artificially presented, or artificially is the wrong way, but the priorities of the people who conserved them, who stopped them from truly falling down, were quite different from how we might understand them today. So I'm thinking of, of Stokesay, of, of Walkworth, of in fact many of the castles I've worked on, when some of these properties were taken into care, the people who looked after them, who, who initially tried to stop them falling down, their priority by and large was the medieval fabric. I think that's fair to say, Jeremy, um, that, that they were not so interested in the post-medieval occupation of these, these castles when a castle like Middleham in, in North Yorkshire, close to Richmond, we know that it was probably used as something like a farm or a farming enclosure. So in amongst the medieval ruins, there would have been 
workshops, stables, a barn, a kiln, and often the castles were, were lived in for this purpose as long as they had been lived in as medieval residences. But when they were taken into care, the medieval was prioritised, the high status was prioritised, and what had come more recently was kind of removed and not necessarily mm. talked about. So to go back to your question, an Englishman is his castle is because it speaks to our identity and it speaks to this kind of, you know, this past, this vision of, of England's past that we have, which is really fascinating because it, it sheds a whole load of other questions on, on our identity, I suppose. That's quite a long-winded answer, apologies. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a beautiful answer. Um, mine is a bit more flippant that... It takes me back to when I was sitting my finals uh, for my degree, where actually one of the questions was, an Englishman's house is his castle, discuss. And uh, I, and I'm sure I wasn't the only person who thought I was being oh so clever in pointing out, well, actually it was a Frenchman's house was his castle. Because what they really wanted was for us to get into the question about, you know, what is a castle and what is not a castle? Did the Anglo-Saxon residences with bell house and burgate and hall and all that kind of thing do, do they count as castles or not it's a it's, it's a difficult question but to take it on i mean i think it's while i don't know where the quotation comes from there is undoubtedly a, a strain of romanticism that runs through many of these things i think you know we've talked occasionally about you know the castle in hollywood and they they didn't invent many of these ideas that actually there are strains that run quite deeply that's interested in the ideals of knights and chivalry and knights on shining armour. And, you know, Will is undoubtedly true that the evocation of that has has been a very powerful impulse. And so often in in the history of our sites, it's actually run counter to, to what the true history was, where, you know, the castles have been, you know, used as farms or like, you know, Framlingham Castle had a poorhouse or a workhouse, in, you know, inside it. But I suppose, you know, this it speaks to our identity, but we're not the only ones that do this. In plenty of other countries in Europe, they actually have, you know, statements like castles in the air and castles in Spain and other things, which have all sorts of interesting meanings. And in fact, Don Quixote, you know, the greatest and most, most cherished literary work of Spain is largely about satirising the romantic ideals where, you know, windmills become giants and, and rather grotty inns, you know, on the road become castles where, where knights do deeds of chivalry. So it is a powerful impulse and I don't think the realistic modern age actually will ever dent that, that idea. Even, even I sometimes do feel the power of it. Absolutely. I mean, I also think the idea of castles as representing something has very has very long legs and very deep roots, hasn't it? I mean, it goes almost mm. back to the 17th century. And kind of after that, you find ruined castles forming part of a, a landscape of a country house that's been put up nearby. And it, it, it is about referring to that castle represents my ancestry, but it also yes. comes to represent something about that past, about kind of a medieval, an idea of the medieval past, which speaks to you in, in, in your present you've been listening to the english heritage podcast to find out more about english heritage castles and castle life go to the english heritage website or listen to episode 59 of the podcast next week we enter the world of spies and british intelligence as we get to know six former secret agents who've been honored with blue plaques he was, if you like, an elective double agent. He chose what he did. And it's a, it's a pretty extraordinary story. Thanks for listening. See you next time.